All right. Who's going? All right. Good morning, church. Um, thank you all, first of all, for, for being here this morning. Um, this is actually my second ever Church of the Park. Monica and I have been around for about six months, and uh, and last week was our first Church of the Park, and I love it. I love looking at the mountains. I'm thinking of like a, you know, Psalm 19, where it says the heavens declare the glory of God, and just get to experience that in a felt way. So, so thank you all for being here. Um, if this is your first time with us, uh, we've actually been taking the last, uh, this is the fifth week that we've been in the book of Hebrews, right? And so the, the book of Hebrews, um, it's actually a sermon that was written by an unknown pastor to a group of Jewish Christians um, near like mid to late first century Rome, right? And this church was kind of undergoing some persecution. They're undergoing some hardship. And all the way through this letter, the pastor is saying, guys, like Jesus is worth it. Like don't drift away. Don't fall away. Jesus is better than anything else that we could possibly pursue in life. And for us as a church, as we've been studying this text, We've been realizing week after week that that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than anything that we can pursue. Um, But that doesn't mean that pursuing Jesus is always easy, right? Sometimes being a follower of Jesus can be difficult. And so today, the the pastor in Hebrews is actually giving his people a warning, uh, a a warning against uh, apathy, a warning against kind of a, a spiritual laziness. And so here in Utah... We're, we're, we're the beehive state, right? And I remember when, when Monica and I first, we first moved out here, we saw these beehives on the road signs and stuff, and we were wondering, like, why? Like, I wasn't sure if we were, like, you know, the national leader of honey production or something in Utah. Like, uh, but we found out that it's because everyone here is such a, a hard worker, right? Everyone's like a, a bunch of worker bees putting in the hours. And, and so in Utah, we are people who work hard at our jobs. We work hard in our families. We work hard on our houses. We work hard in our hobbies. But sometimes I think it's easy for us to work hard on all of those things and then not work hard on the thing that matters most, right? Our, our relationship with Jesus. We'll spend our time working on everything else except for our relationship with Jesus and soon our affections for him cool, our obedience to him dwindles, and, and we get apathetic in our spiritual life, right? And we'll see today that when that happens, there are actually s- severe consequences, this is, a hard, this is a hard message this morning, and, and we're going we're gonna to see that through looking at Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verse 11, and we're going to go all the way through 6, 12, and so we're going to start in Hebrews 5, 11, and uh, as we do, this is what we're going to kind of see emerge out of the text, right? We're going to see what spiritual maturity actually looks like. We're going to see what happens when we become spiritually lazy, and then we're going to see what will fuel our spiritual formation, right? So what spiritual maturity is, what happens when we become apathetic towards our formation, and then what will fuel us in our pursuit of being a spiritually mature person. And we're going to see this by starting at verse uh, 11 in chapter 5. And so if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can follow along with me. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. It's about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the life or who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who sake uh, it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. This is the word of the Lord, and uh, we thank God for it. And so the first truth that we're going to see in our text today is that spiritual maturity requires practicing obedience. Spiritual maturity requires practicing obedience. And, and this is coming right out of verses 5, 11 through 14. So, so if you're wondering where I'm getting at, that's, that's where this kind of truth is found. And it's really important to understand the broader context here, right? Because in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through 5, 10, um, the, the preacher here is talking about Jesus as our priest and king, right? And he uses uh, Melchizedek as like an illustration for this. And we're actually going to talk about Melchizedek in two weeks. And so if you're interested in, in Melchizedek, come around for that. But, but here, he's talking about Jesus as priest and king. And then he has to pause, right? He has to take a time out. And he says, about this, I have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He's like saying, guys, time out. Like, I want to keep going, but I can't. You're, you're not ready for it. He says, you should be able to teach this stuff right now, but right now you're still nursing on milk. You're not ready for this solid food as Christ, as priest and king. He said solid food is for the mature. And then in verse 14, he goes on to define what maturity looks like. He says that people who are spiritually mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice of distinguishing good from evil. The evidence of a spiritually mature person is somebody who regularly practices discerning between good and evil. And I think this is really important for us to camp out on here for a minute because in our culture, we have this concept of a spiritual person being somebody who's like, uh, you know, at one with themselves and the universe or like we'll think of this like new age yogi who like meditates all the time or, or someone who's gone through this like you know, hardship and like reach this state of nirvana and enlightenment. And, and we sort of have this view of spirituality that's, that's very like ethereal. It's very like removed from our practical world. And as a result, when we hear the term spiritual formation or, or spiritual maturity, we don't even quite know what that means. Like I hear that, and, but, but what does that actually mean? Right, if I asked you what is spiritual formation, what would you say? How would you answer that? 
It's a term that we, we use all the time, but we're not able to actually pinpoint the meaning because we live in this kind of dualistic universe or this world that kind of separates like the spiritual from the physical. Um, but, but that's not necessarily the worldview that we see in Scripture. In Scripture, in, in Genesis 2, uh, the writer of Genesis 2 describes the creation of humanity, and he uses this metaphor of God breathing immaterial spirit into the material dirt to create humanity right? Humanity, humans, we are a complex amalgamation uh, of spirit and flesh. That's, that's who we are. We are both immaterial and material. And this matters because our spiritual formation is a very practical thing. It's not this ethereal, like metaphysical, squishy thing. I, I, if we want to form our immaterial spirit, it requires our practical, physical actions. We have to do things. We, we have a view of spirituality being solely metaphysical, and when we do, it kind of removes the teeth from spiritual formation. And so a very simple definition of, of spiritual formation is growing in affection for and obedience to Jesus. Right? That's what a spiritually mature person is, someone who loves Jesus and who obeys him. And as we make loving Jesus and obeying him uh, a priority, it's a constant practice, we actually grow in our maturity. It allows us to discern good from evil, and we'll find ourselves in a place where we can start moving from the milk of our faith into the solid food. And, and here's the thing. This doesn't happen overnight, right? Spiritual formation, growing in spirit maturity, happens over seasons, not days. It's the constant practice of discerning between good and evil. And we live in a culture, again, that, that that's very hard to do, that's why, that's why we need to be so rooted in Scripture. An example, you know, our, our culture says that, that, that sex is nothing more than a physical act that you can do wherever you want, whatever, whoever you want, however you want, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody. And if you kind of contradict that opinion or that viewpoint, you're actually considered oppressive. Our, our Scripture, the Bible, says that, that sex is a powerful gift given by God to strengthen the marital bond between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, so that the fruit of their love can create new life. And now these are two completely different worldviews, and a follower of Jesus must discern what is good and evil, and then practice the good, endorse the good, teach the good, be an advocate for the good. That is what will help us grow in spiritual maturity. It's very practical. Following Jesus in our day-in and day-out life, practicing the ways of Jesus, is the mundane discipleship that will actually allow you to become a spiritually mature person. And as we become more mature, as our relationship with God deepens, he'll, he'll reveal himself to us in new ways through the scripture. He takes us from the milk of our faith into the solid food. And so often we'll, we'll equate knowledge with maturity, right? You might be uh, somebody who, who can spout off facts about the Bible and your Bible trivia is on point, or, or we can all talk about Luther and Calvin and the Reformation and church history, or we can talk about apologetics and, and why our faith is credible and rational. And, and we hear people with this type of knowledge, and we think, man, that is the goal. That, those guys are spiritually mature. That is what I want to be. But here's the question. Are, are you loving? Are you patient? Do you gossip? Do you grumble? Do you complain? Do you lie? Do you cut corners in work? Do you allow your life to be controlled by lust, right? We can, we can have all the knowledge in the world, but if we are practicing evil regularly, we are not growing in maturity, our, our disobedience will halt our spiritual maturity. And so if you want to move from milk to solid food, you must do the work of regularly practicing obedience to Jesus and his word. 
And this will position you in such a way that you can receive deeper theological truths about God from his word. Um, Jesus actually echoes this this same sentiment in in John. In John chapter 7, Jesus is at the festival of booths. Throughout his whole public ministry, you know, the Pharisees are questioning his teaching, and Jesus jumps up and he says, if it's anyone's will to do God's will, then they will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Right? In this idea, in this passage, we have this direct correlation between doing God's will, obedience, and, and knowing God's truth. If you want to know God's truth and grow in your relationship with him, you must practice God's will. The writers of Hebrew, he's saying, guys, like, I want to teach you the deeper truths about Jesus, but you're not ready, right? They'll be meaningless to you. You won't be able to do anything with them. What, what, what good is it to understand that Christ is your eternal priest and king if you're not going to do what the priest king says? I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. I've experienced this before in, in my own uh, life when it comes to cooking. I am not, I'm not a cook by any stretch of the words. And I remember one time when Monica and I were, were early in our marriage, I woke up and I was like, man, I, I could just go for some eggs Benedict right now. And so I like go online, I Google the recipe, I look at it, I'm like, oh man, I have all the ingredients, I have the instructions, let's get to work, right? And everything was going fine until I had to make the hollandaise sauce. And I don't know if you've ever done this. For me, this was like an impossible feat. Like instead of having this beautiful, like velvety, like creamy sauce, I had this like goopy, like st- stringy, runny thing that I'm pretty sure was full of salmonella. But, but in that moment, I had the knowledge, but I didn't have the skill set. My, my knowledge uh, had outpaced my skill set, and, and my knowledge was useless. Didn't matter. And now, how foolish would it be for someone watching me try to make this Eggs Benedict disaster come up and say, hey, no, no, I got an idea. Instead of trying to make an Eggs Benedict, why don't you use those eggs to make a souffle? I've got the instructions right here. Go ahead and do that. Right? That would be absurd. Like, a souffle is, like, one of the most technically challenging things that I can't even make a hollandaise sauce. Right? This new knowledge would not aid me in my growth as a cook. It would shame me. It would expose my immaturity. And so what should I do? I should practice day in, day out, work on my technique, and then I can build up my skill set and be ready for the knowledge of creating the souffle, right? And with that knowledge would come the benefit of enjoying a delicious meal. That is what spiritual formation is. It is the day in and day out practice of discerning good from evil. And as we do, we'll grow in the depths of our relationship with Jesus. We'll see facets of him in scripture that we've never noticed before, right? And it will be a joyful, fun experience. We will get all the benefits of the relational intimacy with Jesus here on earth as we pursue a deeper relationship with him. But, but what most of us do, what I find myself guilty of at times is saying, nah, that's hard. I don't want to put in that work. I'm just going to go back to eating scrambled eggs. We decide I don't want to do the work of becoming a spiritually mature person, and so we'll just hang out here. Many of us want the souffle. We want the life with Christ, but we don't want to do the practice that it takes to get there. We want the resurrected life, but we don't want to die with him. And so because we're not putting in the work of discipleship or dying with Christ, we don't really get to experience the resurrected uh, life with Christ. We miss out on the benefit of that. We'll get apathetic. We'll get stagnant in our faith. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, man, that's milk. Don't be satisfied with just knowing your theology. Don't be satisfied with the knowing about salvation by grace through faith. Press in to the discipleship and experience the depths of relationship that you can have with Jesus. Because what what happens is when we don't do that, if we're eating a diet of scrambled eggs every day, that life gets boring. 
We're not being thrilled by the Lord. And then we'll start to seek being thrilled by something else. And, and, and that can quickly lead to sin, right? And, and not only that, but we'll forfeit the blessings of being in a relationship with Jesus. So, so the writer of Hebrews here is saying, stop eating scrambled eggs, right? Don't get spiritually lazy because when you do, you'll forfeit the great benefits of being in Christ. And that's really the second truth that he's getting at here. Um, in the second kind of movement of this passage, verses six through eight, he, he's talking about the idea of spiritual laziness forfeiting the present benefits of being in Christ. Spiritual laziness forfeits the present benefits of being in Christ. And so as we're, as we're looking at this, um, I just want to say six through eight is a super tricky text. And what I would love to do is lay out all the four ways that you can take it. I'd love to steel man them all, poke holes in them and show you how I came to the one, but we don't have three hours to do that. Right? So if you have any questions about this text afterwards, come and find me. Uh, but I, and I'd love to talk about it, but, but this is a, this is a, a tricky text. And so to really understand the text, we kind of have to understand the context right? What's, what's happening? And in chapter four, Benjamin did a great job talking to us last week about how the writer of Hebrews kind of has these wilderness people in mind, the, the Exodus people, the Jewish people, how they were leaving Egypt and they failed to enter God's rest, right? Because of their kind of spiritual apathy, their mistrusting God, they didn't get to enter the promised land. Well, as the writer of Hebrews is writing this, he's kind of continuing that thought. And he's actually using certain words that are going to hyperlink us back to this story. I was talking to Josh Gardner about this, and he said, man, if Hebrews was a, a Wikipedia page, the whole, the whole sermon would be blue. It would be blue links going back to the Old Testament to, to teach us something. And, and so what he's doing here is he's using certain words that are going to take our minds and take the minds of the first century audience back to this Old Testament people. And so like an example of this would be like if I said, hey, guys, I'm going I'm to tell you a story. It's a tale as old as time, as true as it could be. Right? right off the bat, especially if you have girls, your mind is going to go to the Beauty and the Beast. And whatever story I tell, that story of the Beauty and the Beast is going to inject some meaning into it, right? Or, or if I say like, yeah, and in my story there's a bad guy, and, and right when the bad guy is about to do something bad, he pauses and says, I'll be back. Right? Sorry, it's terrible Arnold Schwarzenegger. But it, he says, I'll be back. Instantly, our image of that bad guy is going to be influenced by Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator. Right? And so that's what we, we understand the story in light of the cultural narratives that I'm inserting into the story. They bring meaning into it. And so the, the phrases that this guy is using when he's preaching this are doing that for his people. And so to really understand what this writer is talking about here, we kind of need to know a little bit about the people of the Exodus. Right? And so the people of the Exodus, they were, they were God's chosen people. They were held in bondage and captivity and slavery. And they cried out to the Lord to, to deliver them from, from the captivity of Egypt. And God raises up Moses to liberate them. And as he does, after 10 plagues, God guides them out of Egypt with a pillar of light. He enlightens their way with fire. Right? He leads them safely into the desert. They're hungry. They're complaining. They want food. And so God provides manna and, and quail for them to eat. There are over a million people out here. There's one guy leading them. And so, so God raises up a bunch of leaders. He pours out his spirit upon them. They experience his spirit and they all govern the people. And then God gives them the law, his good word. And he, they receive it with power, right? And yet despite all of that, all of that personal interaction from God, these people grew cold in their relationship with God. They became apathetic. They didn't trust him. And right when they were approaching the promised land, they were not able to enter into it. They had forfeited the benefit of being in the promised land. They didn't forfeit being God's people. They were still God's people, but they didn't have the blessing of being in the promised land. 
And so it's important for us to understand this story because he's using words to hyperlink us back to this story. When he says it's impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, in his immediate context, he's talking about us, regenerate followers of Jesus, right? But he's also talking about the people who were led out of Egypt by a pillar of fire, whose way was enlightened. When he says that those who have tasted the heavenly gift, again, he's talking about us, those who have participated in the life of the church and experienced God in a real and tangible way, and yet he's also infusing meaning from those who had received bread and manna in the wilderness. When he's talking about those who have shared in the life of the Holy Spirit, he's bringing our mind back to those leaders that God poured his spirit out upon. And when he talks about those who have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the age to come, he's linking us back to those who received the law from God in the desert. And so I, I hope you've seen how this works. As the pastor is preaching, he's talking to the people in his church, right, in such a way that they're listening and saying, dang, that's me. But he's also talking about the people of the Exodus in such a way that his people are saying, yep, that's me too. He's giving them a warning. He's doing this because he's building up to give them a very strong warning. And he's saying, don't be like the Exodus people that forfeited the promised land. He says, if you fall away, there's no repentance that will bring back the benefit that you've missed out on. He's saying, if you become spiritually lazy and sluggish in your faith, you're like those Exodus people who missed out on this beautiful land of milk and honey and had to remain in the desert place. And just like those Exodus people, there's no amount of repentance that can bring that benefit back. They all died in the desert, and it was a new generation that entered this land. It's gone. There are benefits to being in Christ, and there are benefits to obeying Christ. In verse 7, he calls them blessings, right? In Christ, we have access to circumstance-transcending joy. We have peace in the midst of a chaotic existence, right? And if we're, if we're practicing the mundane discipleship of discerning good from evil, and we're regularly practicing doing the things that honor God, there are benefits in that that we can forfeit through our laziness. God created humanity. He knows what's good for us, right? He gave us a good law, a good standard to align our lives with. And when we live under his lordship, we experience the joy of human flourishing as we were intended to, right? When we practice in the self-denial of being crucified with Christ, we get to experience the resurrected life in Christ. But there are benefits to being in Christ that we can give up through spiritual laziness that can never be restored. It's kind of like, uh, like my finger here. I don't know if you all have ever noticed but I'm actually working with nine digits over here, right? And so about a decade ago, I was in this crazy rollover car accident. I didn't wear my seatbelt. I ended up getting thrown out of the car. I lost a finger. It was this crazy ordeal. Um, but I can, I can go to God, right? And I can go, God, I'm so sorry. Like, I repent, I repent, I repent. I'm so sorry for not wearing my seatbelt. And God will say, son, you're forgiven, right? You're forgiven. But that finger's gone. Like, it's not coming back, right? You're, you're going to have to pick your nose with a different finger now. Like, it's over, <laughs> And, and, and that's what it's like when we, when we forfeit the blessing of uh, being in Christ because of spiritual laziness, right? And this is not a popular message in our culture. We want, when we do something or, or we're, being, uh, we're, we're acting in a way that's dishonoring to God, we want someone to come around and say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Like, we'll, we'll make this work. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, no, like your spiritual apathy, your laziness, it has consequences. It can give birth to sin, and there are sinful choices that we can make that no amount of repentance can be restored, that you can't be restored by, right? We can, we can ruin marriages that can never be built back up again. We can, we can inflict trauma upon ourselves and upon others that they will live with for the rest of their lives, right? 
We can create neural pathways that cannot be undone. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, don't become spiritually lazy. Don't become sluggish. It's just like the Exodus people. They made it up to the promised land, and they missed the benefit of entering it. And now they lost, their, they, they, they lost the blessing, but, but they didn't lose their status. They remained God's people. And church, my fear is that like we, we live in this culture where it's so easy to be distracted by the things that don't matter right? It's so easy for us to be like worker bees who are constantly working on, on, on our careers and our families and, and, and to get to the end of our life and go, man, I wasted it, right? And we get to our life with, with regret and repentance going, God, why did I spend so much time on my phone? God, why did I spend so much time working? Why didn't I pursue the things that really mattered? And God will look at us and say, my child, I forgive you, but those benefits and those blessings, you lost them. You can't have them. They're gone. There are spiritual realities and spiritual benefits that you could be missing out on right now that you're not even aware of because you're not regularly practicing discipleship to Jesus. And that is my fear. I want us to engage with Jesus in obedience and to put off spiritual apathy. Our spiritual maturity requires obedience. And, and the writer of Hebrews gives us this beautiful illustration of what that looks like in verses 7 and 8. He says that, that those who practice obedience, they're like those who have drunk up the rain of God's word and put it into practice. They're like a field that produces a crop and God blesses. But those who drift off into spiritual laziness, who stop doing the work of maturity, they're like a field that is good for nothing, overgrown with thorns and thistles. They are cursed and they will endure the hardship of the pain that comes from spiritual apathy. Our spiritual laziness will forfeit the present benefits of being in Christ, and there is no repentance that can restore that. Church, I don't want that for you. I want you to experience the benefits of being in Christ and the deep joy and affections that come from being in relationship with him. And so this is a strong warning, right? The, the exhortation is for us to keep after it day in and day out. Practice the ways of Jesus. But what he really wants us to know is that while spiritual laziness can forfeit the benefit of being in relationship with Jesus, nothing can ever forfeit our salvation. We can never lose that. We can, we can lose the benefits, but if you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, this, this pastor is saying that if you're a regenerate follower of Jesus, there's nothing that you can do to lose your status as his child. Right? That's the last kind of take-home that we're going to have today is that in Christ we have the full assurance of our salvation. We see this kind of coming out of chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. In Christ, we have the full assurance of our salvation. And he starts off by saying, he says, though we speak in this way, referring to a very stern warning, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so even though the writer of Hebrews gives this really strong warning, he wants to let them know that he is sure of their salvation. And then he goes on to say, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And so during this persecution, we, we learn in this text that this, this little church was really faithful to serve the saints. And the writer here is saying, hey, with the same earnestness that you are serving those persecuted saints, I want you to have the same earnestness towards the assurance of your salvation. He wants them to pursue this insurance. In these few verses, we see that one, the pastor preaching is sure of their assurance. And two, he wants them to be sure of their assurance. 
Because in Christ, we have the full assurance of our salvation. And so we see this emerging out of our text immediately, but if you're looking at the broader context of Hebrews 2, there are a lot of strong warnings, but assurance is a dominant theme, right? If we zoom out and look at the broader context of Hebrews, we'll see a verse like Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us then draw with confidence near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And there are so many of us that think, man, I've sinned too much. I've done too much. God can't love me. God can't forgive me, right? But this verse tells us that when we are in our time of need, listen, church, I can't think of a time that I'm in more need than when I'm entrenched in sin, right? So in my time of need, I can go before God in the throne of grace, and I can cry out to him with confidence, not with timidity, not wondering if God will accept me, but with confidence, knowing that he loves me and that he will forgive me, and he will give me more grace and more mercy. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In this text, we see that if we've trusted in Christ, we have the full assurance of our salvation because our hearts have been sprinkled clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Right? My, my favorite verse in the entire Bible is actually in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 10.14. It says, By a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Jesus, by a single offering, by his self-sacrifice on the cross, he has made me perfect for all time while I'm being sanctified. Sanctification is the process of becoming like God, right? Becoming more Christ-like, I should say. Um, it's, it's the process of being a sinner and moving uh, to being less sinful. And yet, while I'm still in that process, still a sinner, God sees me through the lens of his son as perfect. This is the assurance that we have. There's nothing that we can do to lose our salvation because our salvation is not based upon what we've done, but based upon what Jesus has done for us. Now, why does the writer of Hebrews end on assurance? He answers that in verse 12. He says, I want you to have the full assurance of your salvation so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Having the assurance of your salvation will help you fight against spiritual laziness. It will help you fight against apathy. Assurance is, is the gas that fuels our obedience, right? And with, without assurance, your obedience either won't last or it won't work. If you're not confident in your place with God, you can be be become begrudgingly obedient, right? You, you, you obey out of obligation. You don't trust that his words are good. You look at all your friends who are doing all the things that you want to do, and you're not doing them, and so, so there's some animosity towards God, and that type of obedience doesn't last. It's not going to last. Or if you're not confident that, that Jesus did the work for you and that your assurance is in Jesus, you can become self-righteously obedient, right? And, and the self-righteous, obedient person, they're going to white-knuckle, rule-follow, and they're going to kind of look around and think that they've deserved their salvation, that they've earned it. They might not ever say that, but that's the thought. But listen, that type of obedience, it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Begrudging obedience doesn't last. Self-righteous obedience doesn't work because our obedience is ultimately to bring us into a closer relationship with God, right? And, and self-righteous obedience is going to take us further from God. It's going to alienate us from others, and it's not going to save us, so it doesn't work, or we can actually become uh, uh, dishearteningly disobedient. We realize that I can't be righteous on my own, and so I quit. This is, this is kind of where I fell into. I was raised in this really strict kind of uh, religious upbringing, and I, was never, I never really understood grace. I never really understood assurance. And so every night before I went to bed, I'd try to recite every sin that I committed, hoping I didn't miss one because the rapture could happen any time and I could be taken up. 
You know, every, every single Sunday I would rededicate my life, and I eventually got to this point where I was like, God, I can't do this. Like, I can never be good enough for you, so I'm going to stop trying. Like, if I can't be good enough for you, I'm not going to try to be good enough for you, and I just quit, and that led me down this path of destruction that God eventually had to pull me up out of, right? And it wasn't until God had gotten back a hold of me, I listened to a pastor preach Ephesians chapter 2, and he said, man, every sin that you've ever committed, past, present, and future, has been forgiven by God if you are in Christ, right? And then I read uh, Hebrews 10, 14, and everything just clicked that by the one sacrifice, he has perfected me for all time while I am being sanctified. And that produces a joyful obedience. That becomes the fuel for a joyful obedience. You realize that God is your good and loving father who set parameters in your life so that you can experience human flourishing the way it was intended to be experienced. And then you joyfully obey God. You, you press into deeper relationship with him. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants. He wants his people to throw off spiritual apathy and to joyfully press into an obedient relationship with Jesus and experience all the benefits that come with that. And so that's the, 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 the message of Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12, right? That, that if we want to become spiritually mature people, we have to practice obedience, and that spiritual apathy is going to forfeit the benefits of being in Christ, but in Christ we have the full assurance of our salvation. And so, so, so where does that leave us? Well, first, if you're not a follower of Jesus, can I tell you one thing that's worse than getting to the end of your life with regret? It's spending eternity with regret, right? If you're a person who says, man, I don't want God now, he will say, fine, you don't get me ever. And we go into an eternity separated from God and all of his goodness in a life of regret and pain and torment. And I don't want that for you. So if you are here and you have not trusted in Christ, you have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus and entered into his rest, as Benjamin talked about last week, do that now. It's simple. Tell God that you're a sinner. Ask him for your forgiveness and trust in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And if you are a follower of Jesus, do not focus your life on things that don't matter, right? Don't spend all your time and energy and efforts on the things of this world that don't matter. Pursue Jesus with the fullness of everything that you have and experience the blessing that comes from that. Because, because our spiritual maturity requires obedience and spiritual laziness is going to forfeit the benefits of being in Christ. And so with that, please bow your head. Father, um, we come before you uh, thankful for your word, uh, thankful that you care enough to speak to your people and that you give us strong warnings so that we can experience the joy of being in relationship with you. And so we ask that by your spirit that you would empower us to press into our relationship with you and to forsake living for things of this world, that we might live a joyful and pleasing life in relationship with your son. Uh, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.